Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Welcome. I am so glad that you are here with us today, welcoming Allison to the podcast. Allison of Ancestral Kitchen speaks to us today from a tiny little flat outside Florence, Italy, and this flat overlooks the land that grows and sustains her food. From that kitchen overlooking that land, she cooks for her family and develops resources for the rest of us on how to eat ancestrally. Now for Allison, food has been the catalyst for just about everything in her life. As a child, she turned to food when she felt deep in her soul that she was not at home. Then in her early years as an adult, Allison lost half her body weight in a bid to take charge of her own life and to prove to herself that she could do hard things. Then with that proof in hand, she made one massive change in her life after another. Changes that defied expectations, aligned with her convictions, and have given her a life that feels meaningful, abundant, and joyful. Allison made choices like leaving a successful job for the lifestyle that she imagined, moving her family from England to Italy, and curing herself of PCOS, at least to the extent that she could resume cycles and have a child. So in this episode, we're diving deep into what ancestral eating means, the benefits of eating this way, and how busy people can lead an intentional and healthful lifestyle. Allison is such a calm person, and this conversation will bring the same to your life. And it will also bring you the most delicious spelt sourdough pizza recipe and lots of solid practical tips on cooking with sourdough. Um, A lot of this is thanks to my mistakes with it. So for this comforting, cozy listen in the middle of your busy life, I'm bringing you Allison. Thank you so much to her and thank you to all of you for being here. So Allison, what's it like there? Three o'clock in the afternoon in Italy. It's it's blue skied, very mm. sunny, um, mm. nice winds today. There's not often a lot of wind here, but there's mm. a fair bit of wind. My son is not very well, so he's upstairs with my husband off school today. Um, but he's been he's he's just got snuffles, you know, and and it's quite a long day for him because he goes to school in Florence and we get the train and we have mm. to get up at half past six. We have to get him out of bed at half past six, and then it's like. Yeah rush rush and I just thought you know let's yeah. just not send him in today let's let him just rest a little bit so um, I haven't done as much as I wanted to because he's been around but he's he's quite happy up there at the moment and um that's lovely so how far outside of Florence do you live I always do my calculations by the train because mm. that's the only transport I really use. We're we're twenty, maybe twenty-two minutes by train into central Florence. Oh wow. Close. Okay. And cars can't travel in in into central Florence. So does your son oh. he goes by bus and then does he um, walk in car, or how does that work? Car, cars can travel in central mm. Florence. Um it's an absolute nightmare though. There are too many cars in Florence and not enough streets and everyone who's at his school drives all the mums drive and they never find anywhere to park and we're stuck in traffic it's just a nightmare I'm really glad I don't get involved in any of that 
Yeah. That sounds really I mean, I, I haven't, I, I do drive, but I haven't had a car for probably, I mean, more than a decade, maybe more like 15 years. And, mm. and I don't, I don't miss the car. I don't, I don't want to get back in a car. I just, I love being car free and using trains and my feet and a bicycle. Mm. Just, mm. I love it. Oh, that's so idyllic. It's safe there where you are? Mm-hmm. Well, no. Last year, for a while, we weren't able to go on the trains. And mm. um, my husband built a bicycle with a motor on it because it's extremely mm. hilly here. So he, he's like super fit. But he, there's no way he could do the, the hills because they're, they're so steep here without wow. a motor. Wow. And he was using that to go into Florence um, twice a week because he teaches music to, to teach lessons. Mm. And um, the problem is... He explored all the back routes, up the hills, through olive groves, et cetera, et cetera, to try and get into Florence. But they're so sort of windy and twisty and out of the way that it it was literally going to take him about 10 times as long to go the back streets than the main road. And the main roads are full of traffic and quite thin at points. And I really didn't like him cycling on those main roads. No, I would say going into the city... It's not that safe. Round the town that I live, it is safe. Yeah. Okay. So we know Florence is 20 minutes away. We've got a hilly town with olive groves. How about your more um, outside your home? What is your property like there in Italy? Um, it's small, very small. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have two rooms, basically, one upstairs and one downstairs. The downstairs is the bedroom, which is mm-hmm. nice because in summer – it's much cooler, which is what you want oh. when you're trying to go to when you're trying to go to um, sleep. Yeah. And then upstairs we've got kitchen, the entrance, uh, our dining space, and our living space as well. It's a modern house in a town. Okay. Um, and I guess it kind of looks like a typical kind of modern Italian <laughs> dwelling. It's on the ground floor and slightly cut in to the earth because we're on a hill mm-hmm. so our our upstairs floor is level with the ground at the front of the house and I our see. downstairs floor is level with the ground at the back of the house that is a so steep hill it's very steep that's what I say about bicycles <laughs> that is a very steep hill wow so, that's um, a pitch yeah it's we've got a tiny little garden out the back which is mm. which has been paved but I have covered in pots and <laughs> growing all sorts of things out the back so you can't really move out there much anymore mm. um, but the garden the garden the bedroom opens straight onto the garden oh. and the best thing about this flat I mean it's tiny but we like it that way because I like being cozy and we don't mm. have tons and tons of stuff we're not mm-hmm. that type of people we've moved around too much but the mm. best thing about it is the main window from upstairs looks out on the most beautiful view and mm. and I when I visited this flat, we had quite a difficult time just prior to visiting this flat. We had a, um, a flat that kind of went wrong mm. and then we had nowhere to live for 12 weeks. And it was just before COVID started and extremely difficult. Yeah, and then yeah. this place just magically kind of appeared. Mm. And I saw the view and it, it, you literally look out and you can see a little um, the gardens and you can see a little green in front mm. of us. And then in the background, you just see wooded hills which are the hills between us and Florence Mm. and you can see the all the different shades of green in 
as fall starts to come, you see some of it changing colours. You can see little kind of Tuscan farmhouses and smoke coming out of their chimneys. Oh. It's, it, it, and you see the sky. So sometimes there's fog, sometimes there's snow on the hills, sometimes it's bright blue. You see all the birds doing their kind of murmuration things. It, mm. it just, I am so thankful and grateful that we have this tiny little flat in, you know, a, a, a town, you know, it's a reasonable sized mm. town. And yet we have this beautiful view. Mm. So. How about the window that opens out to it? Is it large and spacious? Yeah, it's a triple window. Oh. So it it's let's it's the only light we have upstairs. Mm. So it's a godsend for that as well, being triple that we get light in through it. But yeah, it opens really, really it's wide, a really it's a beautiful vista. Mm. Amazing for photography as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it mm. is. It is. Oh, that's beautiful. Now I've never this is very new to me, the idea of a kitchen upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> I have to forget sometimes. I didn't, I, you know, I've never lived in houses before this one that were this oh. way round. And I I kind of, whenever I talk about it, I often say, oh, when I come up into my kitchen, and I think well, most people come down into their yes. kitchen, don't they? But yeah. it's, um, it just, it works because it's lovely and cool down here. And yeah. when it's very, very, it gets very, very hot here in the summer, like in mm. August, it is stifling. Mm. And it is such a relief to come down those steps and feel the temperature go down mm. you know, a number of degrees and be able to come into a cool space to sleep. Mm. And then, yeah, and then we're, um, we're doing all our stuff up above the bedroom. <laughs> mm. That's so nice. It's so nice. Now, um, I'm, I'm asking all of this, of course, because I love... I mentioned to you, I love the name of your um, podcast, your blog, your brand, Ancestral Kitchen. Um, it really evokes so many feelings. And I have to say, it, it you have not disappointed <laughs> this view outside of your kiss kitchen. Um, I guess that just matches all the feelings that I have when I hear Ancestral, you know. Um, how about the setup itself for cooking? Is it, you said it's modern, actually. Yeah, it, it's quite challenging. It's um has called into um kind of work all of my organizational skills because it's very small. Mm. It's one corner of the oh. space that we have to live in, and there is a single sink with a draining board and um a, a hob top, mm. and then there's two tiny spaces to chop on. Literally, that's it, and, a, and wow. not not many cupboards. So I've had to be very um, picky about what I put in the cupboards and how I organise things, the ease mm -hmm. which I can get things. We have a cupboard downstairs that is literally mm. our kind of massive overflow cupboard. And so things get taken in and out of there every day, literally, to, mm -hmm. to come up and use the space. We do have the most beautiful wood table, which mm. I got from an, an old Italian lady just after we moved in, who mm. her husband had made the table originally out of chestnut wood, which is a local wood. Mm. And that really is the heart of the space upstairs. Mm. So it, it's very close to the kitchen workspace. And it's it's really a flexible space. So, you know, my son will sometimes be colouring or drawing on it. 
Mm. and we'll be sitting at it working but also Mm. it then becomes chopping space so you know if I'm Mm. making sauerkraut I'm doing it on there if I'm this morning I rolled out some oats to make oat cakes Mm. and I I literally move my great big wooden chopping board onto this wooden table Mm. and I use that as extra space because it is very small the space I have Mm. to work in very very small Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that as you stand at that kitchen and look out, you know, you think about because I even think about this in my modern, (laughs) my modern home. um, I always think about I I just feel connected when I chop or I just feel connected to um, generations before me. I think that's one of the powerful things about cooking. And I can imagine you must feel that double looking out over that space. But then you must wonder how they fed families of 10 and 12 people in the tiny, tiny yeah. kitchen. I agree. I think the, the kind of the small kitchens in Italy is a big conundrum because, mm. you know, everyone knows how much Italians like their food. And, mm. yeah, they do eat out. But the the nonnas, you know, the older generation mm. certainly cook all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's always wonderful smells around us, you know, and mm. we go outside. And I wonder in the past, the kitchens must have been bigger. Um, people don't have a lot of space to live in here. You know, there is a culture of, of um, flats on flats on flats mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people are used to living in smaller spaces. Also partly because they often live outdoors for eight months of the year. Mm. You know, they'll have a space to eat outdoors. They'll have a, an oven outdoors mm. and they'll be able to do things outdoors. But um, this is a good it's, it feels like, yeah, it feels a challenge for me cooking mm. three meals a day from scratch. And I do wonder, I haven't actually watched Anonna in a tiny kitchen and, and just seen her kind of precision organisation or her flow um, to know. But um, yeah, it does It does make me, me wonder. And I think the view out the window, more than anything, it connects me to the land around mm. here. Um, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me that that the produce that I'm using in my kitchen is from that land. You know, mm. those trees are feeding the soil. You know, that, that um, steepness of hill is the territory on which the animals and the vegetables grow. Mm. And that helps, just connects me more to what I'm chopping and makes mm. me feel part of my environment. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes, I can see that for sure. What is the growing season like there? Do you, you know, you said people live outdoors eight months. Are you able to garden eight months out of the year? Yes, yes. Mm. It's, I feel like we're um, a month, at least a month, maybe even two months ahead of the UK. Not that that maybe helps you, but um, Mm. I, I'm starting seeing things grow. My lavender came out in February this year, which was astounded me. Wow. Um, but I'm I'm growing things definitely by the beginning of April. And mm. then I'm going through until, I mean, I've got vegetables still out there now and we're at the end of September and you can grow, obviously you can grow cabbage and that kind of thing all through the year. But it's eight months a year for, for, for kind of summer vegetables in quotes. Um, so if you're not eating your own your own um, homegrown food, you're eating locally grown food. Okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a market in the town, which mm. is a farmer's market. And there are three vegetable farmers who go there every week who have um, spaces around the town that I live in. And they have vegetables every week. 
in mm. the hungry gap, you know, March, sometimes it's it's a bit difficult, March and April. But in the summer, you know, they have they have the aubergines, they have courgettes, they have tomatoes, they have peppers, they have lettuces. And then as we go into winter, that kind of changes into cavallonero and cabbages and other types mm. of kale. It just it it doesn't ever stop. You know, there's there's the winter veg. And then you come through and then there's a complete change into the summer veg. It's two distinct mm. kind of types of, you know, veg that we get. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. Are there, um, I'm going to think how to phrase this, but um, here where I live, I live, um, I, I don't live in the city, but we really live a city type life. There is a turkey farm around the corner from us. There are a lot of farmers markets around, but really we are very removed from customs and traditions that sort of honor the land and the cycles of the seasons. How about where you are? Is there still some sort of connection that's a little bit closer in terms of the customs, um, the holidays, things like that? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, Mm. I don't know how much it's changing, but just to give you an example, there are there are many, many um, what Italians called sagras, sagra, which is a, a food kind of festival Mm. so it will be in a a kind of a community um, space and it will be themed on whatever is in season at the time so it'll be a mushroom evening or a type of sausage that that is generally traditionally produced at a certain time of year or we've just had one for blackberries and there are constantly there are festivals on with big posters that you know get sort of um pasted up on the local notice boards and people will go and, and celebrate the chestnuts or the mushrooms or the, you know, um, blackberries, like I said. Mm. And so, and and the farmer's market that I go to is very much based on the seasons because the farmers are offering what they can grow. Mm-hmm. There is, there are supermarkets and the generation, really my generation and lower mm-hmm. are the, it's changing you know that the older generation a lot of the the ladies didn't work whereas now two people in the family are working and two mm. people are going out to work from nine to five so they can't cook in the same way they're mm. more likely to shop in a supermarket rather than the you know the traditional kind of Italian market you have in your head mm. and because of that the supermarkets are different to supermarkets I experienced in the UK mm. in that they do have um, local kind of food on display and they do go with the seasons more than I remember in the UK. So in the mm. winter, there's citrus everywhere and most of the produce in the supermarket comes from Italy, mm. whereas in the UK, a lot of it comes from outside of the UK. Mm-hmm. But there is a growing kind of convenience culture here this is I feel like the UK is maybe like 15 20 years behind in mm. Italy's 15 20 years behind the UK um I hope mm-hmm. that the festers and the seasonality and the preciousness of life lived around that will continue and, and I know you know the Italian culture at its heart has this respect for and love mm. of the land Mm-hmm. And I hope that will carry on through, you know, future generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to switch up the questions a little bit and and stay on this okay. theme because um, 
I think now we're getting to the heart of what you mean when you say ancestral kitchen. Mm-hmm. You don't mean it quite, mm-hmm. you know, literally that you're living in a, um, you know, in an old stone house that's been there for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. You are referring to something else. So when you talk about your ancestral kitchen, um, what does that mean? Yeah, good question. Um, it's it's quite interesting for me to answer this question because I've been mm. living it for so long now I mm. I kind of forget <laughs> that it's not normal <laughs> mm. so I mean pre-industrialization I feel like you know 200 years ago we had the industrial revolution and it was the biggest change to our food ever mm. it disconnected us from our land it disconnected us from the seasons it disconnected from the us from the source of of our life, of our sustenance. Mm. And, you know, it it was done because we needed to produce food cheaply to feed the workers in factories. And then food changed from being something kind of personal that gave you life to something now that is food corporations make food for profit and they are Mm. answerable to shareholders. Mm -hmm. And the systems that have grown up around that produce so much waste. There's Mm. so much inequality. And we are literally killing our environment, our communities, Mm. and our own health. Mm. And so when I talk about ancestral food, I mean food food ways from before industrialization, Mm. going back and looking at how people respected food and dealt with food and sustained themselves before all this for-profit kind of stuff Mm. came along. And, and people then had to eat what the land outside their door could give them because mm. food couldn't be shipped, you know, other than spices down the, the kind of the spice route. Mm. Normal food, everyday staples couldn't be shipped hundreds mm. of thousands of miles. And they had to produce things in a way that respected the soil because they knew that that soil had to give them food the next year and their child the food, the food in a decade's time and their grandchildren. Mm. And so they they farmed in a way that gave back to that soil and they farmed in a way that looked after their environment. And they they had a bank of knowledge that had been passed down through generations on what food worked for their bodies and what made them healthy and what mm. they could do to process those foods in order to make them as easy to digest and as nutritious Mm. as they possibly could be and I just feel like all of that has just been wiped out by Mm. the the changes in our food system in the last 200 years and so I mean going back to that and respecting the land respecting the seasons respecting our our biomes and working with food in a joyful way that that connects you with those around you and connects you with the land rather than the disconnection that we, mm. that we see, that I would say our food system is about now. Mm. Okay. So what I'd, I, I'd like to ask questions about, um, like more about that, but mm. as you know, <laughs> or maybe you don't know, but with my podcast, I feel like everybody's um, come to a conclusion or a lifestyle because of their personal story. So um, tell me how mm. you came to this 
point where you wanted to completely change the way you eat. And if this bleeds into the question as to when and how you left the UK and came to Italy, I don't know if the two are interrelated. I suspect they may be. Um, Feel feel free to dive into that as well. Yeah. So I assume, tell me if I'm wrong, I assume you grew up eating food the way most of your classmates and peers did. Mm. Yeah, correct. So I grew up um, as I was born in the 1970s. Mm. Um, So I grew up, you know, mostly I remember the 80s as my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up with a mother who cooked, um, Mm -hmm. but who cooked, who shopped exclusively really in a supermarket. Um, Mm -hmm. At the beginning, I remember she used to shop in a fish shop, but then that closed in our town. Mm -hmm. And she had a repertoire of dishes that she cooked. And we, we ate food she prepared but not anything like the type of food that I'm eating now. We ate bread mm. come from a packet. We ate right. frozen food. We ate tinned food. We ate, you know, chips that went in the oven. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it kind of was normal, you know, mm-hmm. that that's what most of my peers, like you said, ate. Um, I feel like my journey from, <laughs> from there to here has been really, really long. I think probably the first milestone of it, was um, when between the ages of 20 and 21, I lost mm. half my body weight. I dropped from 280 to 140. Mm. Um, and that was me kind of taking control of my life and my food. And it taught me how much difference food could make to your life. So you went from 280 to 140 pounds. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. so we got to back up even a little further. <laughs> I, I, I mean, okay. I, I, I hope this is not an offensive question. How did no, you get? No. How did you get to two hundred eighty pounds? I mean, lots yeah. of people eat in the way that you described and don't weigh two hundred eighty pounds. No, no, uh, and I, I agree with you completely. I think, um, I've always been in my family of origin as a child, mm. a round peg in a square hole. Mm. And I didn't know that because when you're younger, you you don't know that there's anything different other than the family that you've grown up in. Mm. All I knew is that, or I realise now is that I had an incredible anxiety and things were not right for me. I was a mm. a sensitive, create ridiculously creative, such mm. a colourful, passionate, and self reflective child. Mm. Mm. And my family of origin really weren't didn't have the capacity to support me in mm-hmm. in those things and so I it's a very I kind way of saying of, it <laughs> yeah I I you know I've been through stages of feelings towards you know what happened but I know that all of us are just doing our best and we can only mm. work for what we've got and mm. you know it I'm sure I'm making mistakes with my son mm. you know, it's just don't we yeah kind of my it's my journey you know mm. um And so because I, there was this disconnect between who I was and the world I was living in, and I didn't quite know what on earth was going on, I turned to food and particularly sugar. And as we know, sugar is is completely addictive. And so once I'd kind of got a taste for sugar, Mm. I just became addicted to it and it fed um, an escapism for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I could... I could go into my room when no one else understood me and I couldn't get any feedback from any place that I was trying mm. and I could just eat chocolate 
and it felt amazing and luxurious and mm. I felt okay again mm. and it just it got worse and worse to you know the point where I was eating very very badly I put sugar into yogurt and stir it around mm-hmm. and I would go out and buy kilogram bars of of chocolate and mm. and eat those on my own in my room mm-hmm. um, I was just completely addicted and mm-hmm. either, although my family did try to help me do something about it that didn't work mm. um it wasn't until I decided age 20 Correct. that yep. I I just couldn't do this anymore I wanted something different that yeah. things shifted um wow. but it, it was really because I I wasn't being supported I wasn't able to be supported in the world that I was living in to mm. be okay with being me mm-hmm. you know mm. Mm. So when you were 20 and 21 and you made this decision, and I agree with you, the willingness has to come first. There's there's nothing we can do for our even our children. Even there's no amount of love in the world, no amount of strategies, yeah. no amount of techniques that we can do until the willingness is there. Um yeah. what what did you do? Um <laughs> so I I decided I wanted to lose the weight and I had a strong kind of vision of why I wanted to do that. Mm. And I did something which I would never recommend to anyone now, which mm. is I cut all foods with more than 4% of fat out of my diet. Wow. And so I stopped eating cheese, butter, any really kind of fat at all, any cakes, any crisps, um, anything really that that had fat in it. Because that was the 80s, you know, that was the mm-hmm. message that was right. across. Yes. So that's what I did. I carried on eating sugar. Um, mm. and, and I got really creative. I started making, you know, cause I, I've always been creative in the kitchen. I, I love mm. it. And so I would be making kind of pizza bases out of Rivita crisp bread. And I made the most amazing foods to still try and give myself, um, satisfaction and sensation whilst mm. I was going through that and it took about just over a year, but yeah, I lost half my body weight, which was not something I knew that I could do when I started. I didn't know if I was going to fail and fall flat on my face. I did it secretly. I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. Mm. I didn't ask anyone for help. I just go on with it. <laughs> mm. At what point did people start to say things, notice things? Did they become concerned at any point? No, no one became concerned because I didn't go, you know, to a point where mm-hmm. I looked like I was unwell. Um, it took a good couple of months for people to start noticing Mm. And I was a bit, I remember at the time my parents didn't really say anything at the beginning and Mm. they knew what was going on, but they didn't comment at all. It took a while for them to kind of acknowledge what Mm -hmm. had happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I just felt amazing. So, you know, my my health changed, how I looked changed, how I moved changed. Mm. It just there was enough motivation in the results that I was seeing for me to feel like I wanted to continue. Mm. You know? mm. Amazing. When you say this, this is so interesting because of course now we are living in, um, I mean, the fad is completely reversed. Now we're in a, um, the conventional wisdom is high fat is satiating. Um, it's satisfying. And the worst thing you can do to your body is ever allow your blood sugar to spike, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. as I heard from uh, a doctor once, anytime you pathologize a normal function of your body's um, normal function of your body, then you are, you're, 
you're going off track. You're going off track. So with that said, we're in a completely reverse um, trend now. So I am curious when you were cutting out fat, but eating sugar, allowing yourself to eat sugar, did you feel that those addictive tendencies started to wane? Um, and were you able to find, you said you were super um, creative. Were, were, you, were you satisfied with that diet? It was effective. Were you satisfied? Um, that's a really good question. Mm. I, I, looking back, I wasn't, and I know that from what happened afterwards, Mm. but, um, creatively I was satisfied by what I was doing (laughs) and the kind of the, the drug of seeing what was happening to me and how better I was feeling kind of wiped out. Mm. It was a stronger feeling than any other kind of feelings. I feel Mm. like I was still addicted to sugar very much so. And I continued to be addicted to sugar for a very long time after that as well. Mm. And I think cutting out fat did me no favors because it Mm. wasn't, I wasn't able to give my body things that it needs. I think during Mm. that period, I, I did my body kind of harm that I've been trying to recover from, Mm. you know, being 47 now, I've been Mm. trying to recover from that for for many years since mm. and that's part of the reason why I'd say I wouldn't recommend anyone do right it. right but yeah I but I as you addicted. said yeah as you said it was a first step so maybe you were yeah. still addicted to sugar but you weren't um yeah. I, there were other things that were working and it was a first it was a first it was better than not trying right would you agree Correct. or disagree with that yes no mm. completely I mean it, like I said it was the first kind of milestone in mm. in my journey from where I was to where I am now so yes completely mm. Mm. so you said because of what happened after that you know that you were not doing your body yeah. any favors what happened yeah next? so so maybe I kind of carry on with where I was so that's the, yeah the, the losing the weight was the kind of first step and then through my 20s I had I was working in corporate, so I just kind of had a normal, I guess a normal life. I don't know what a normal life is, but mm. I was, like the culture that I was in was you you work hard, you get a good job, you know, you pay off the mortgage, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so I climbed the corporate level in my 20s and I was ended up working for Microsoft. Mm. And it was kind of doing that over five, six, seven years that made me realise that all the trappings that came with that it didn't make me happy you know so I had a a really fast car I had I was able to go on holiday a lot I was able to eat lobster and drink champagne Mm. and but it just there was something very empty inside me when I drove into the car park at Microsoft every day Mm. and I knew that there was more to life so I left that job Mm. and really from then on I was kind of on a when I had the bravery of you know I'd had that weight behind me and I'd seen that I could do it Mm. and then I had the bravery to leave a job where I was you know kind of fated to go and do really good things I was Mm -hmm. I was doing ever so well at that in that job Mm. when I realized I had the guts to leave that too I kind of it gave me such confidence to go right okay what do I want to do with my life and from Mm. then on really I was working to to thrive in my life not Mm. to have a mediocre kind of life and and that's where food kind of came in because then food became a tool to help me a possible tool to help me feel better to help me live to have more energy to to live more to have more confidence to to, to do um, mm. more things and so from there my journey kind of went um 
I did some, I was lots and lots of reading. I've, I've been an avid reader all my life into mm. food and nutrition. I've read hundreds of books. And I started under, learning about the world of fasting and how water fasting um, can be mm. applied to help you. And so I did some juice um, fasting and some water fasting. I then went vegan and then having met my partner, who is now my husband, Mm. Um, together we decided to eat raw vegan which we did for two years wow um that um that was good at the beginning and then Mm. after a while it kind of wasn't good anymore and Mm. kind of about a year and a half into that I realized that I wanted a child but Mm. at that point I hadn't had a period for about four years I think just over four years wow that's have, pretty telling I, <laughs> I, have polycystic, I have polycystic ovaries mm. PCOS mm. and really from very young age my periods had been an absolute nightmare I'd mm. had extremely heavy I'd go a year without having a period the doctor when I was about 13 put me on the contraceptive pill and mm-hmm. I was on that for over a decade Mm. then in my 20s kind of going on this health journey I mm-hmm. pulled myself off it several times but I'd never been able to bring my cycle back at all can I, I ask you a question yeah. Yeah, this is yeah PCOS it's highly correlated with um yeah. you know high weight do you yeah. think that your system was um it, it was thrown off track by being heavy as a child or do yeah. you think that the PCOS led um, led you to like an extreme that maybe another child, even in the same psychological and emotional situation, wouldn't wouldn't have gotten to. Because I I've heard I I thought PC I'm clearly wrong. I was under the misimpression that PCOS was usually resolved when the weight was resolved, but that's clearly false. Yeah. So my piece when I when I was diagnosed with PCOS I went into the hospital and I had a scan and they showed me all the little um, cysts on my ovaries mm. so I, I actually saw you know those cysts were there wow um you ask really interesting and um perhaps difficult to answer questions because mm. PCOS gives you the tendency to become overweight more because of its link to insulin and insulin resistance mm-hmm. you can become insulin resistant and if you do then you're going to get into a cycle where you put on right. weight But it could well be that the PCOS and an imbalance caused by that kind of pushed me towards being overweight. Interestingly, I have a sister who is Mm. two years younger than me, (laughs) and she also has polycystic ovarian syndrome. She never had any of the, I mean, she don't seem to have it kind of like, I don't know, 20% of what I had. Hmm. She didn't have the other symptoms. So she she didn't have um, irregular or missing periods. She didn't have, hmm. I can't remember, I used to have hairs on my face. Hmm. She didn't have such bad skin as me. She didn't become overweight, hmm. but she did struggle with um, being too underweight when we were children. Fascinating. Um, so the answer is really I don't know, hmm. but it wasn't resolved a second bit of what you Clearly. said it wasn't resolved yeah. when I lost weight um I don't know if I've still got those cysts on my ovaries I don't you know I, mm. I remember reading about it and sometimes the body reabsorbs them so you then have a scan mm. and they're not there anymore mm. um what I do know is that now I have no symptoms of PCOS but mm. back then you know in the midst of that journey the amenorrhea I had the absence of periods mm-hmm. was um 
seem to be a product of the polycystic ovarian syndrome and hormone imbalance. Okay. Not a product of um, undernutrition, like just not consuming enough calories. It could, it could have been. Um, mm. I, I don't know. And I don't think I'll ever untangle that because it's mm. in my past, you know, um, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. could, it could have been influenced by my fasting and my veganism, but I did. I mean, before I went vegan, before I got to that stage in my journey, I was, right. I'd go for a year without having a period and I was not Incredible. eating like that then. Right. Um, so I think it's maybe a mixture of the two. I think the veganism and the raw veganism probably in, you know, compacted it and made it even less likely that I was going to have a period. Mm. I just don't know for definite. So um, I, I went to the doctor and the doctor said to me, you will never get your cycle back unless you take drugs. And I smiled at her and in my head, I said, yes, I will. I didn't say that to her. Mm. <laughs> and that that was really what led me to ancestral food. So mm-hmm. from that point onwards, I was in my, I think I was about 37 then. Um, and so I knew my body clock was kind of ticking regarding having a child. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere if I didn't have a cycle. So I started researching ancestral fertility foods. You know, what were the foods that people have traditionally eaten in order to um, become and remain fertile? And there I really you know, opened the world to, to my ancestral kitchen, as it were. Um, Mm. I had at that point, my husband now who had, I was living in Italy at that point and he was with me in Italy. He had been on and and is on an incredible health journey himself, you know, separate from mine. And he was incredibly supportive of all my research and everything that I wanted to do. Mm. And so the, the wanting to try to heal my menstrual cycle led me back to animal foods and animal fats and Mm. traditional fertility foods. And that led me to learning about ancestral processing techniques, about fermentation, about um, um, milk and souring milk and Mm. different other ways of processing foods. And every step that I took on that journey, I began to feel better and I felt more in I felt more in integrity with my choices. Mm. I felt more whole. And really, you know, since then, since that um, kind of shift in what I was doing, I'm on that journey still. I've been on that journey ever since. And and I have a child now who my periods returned after uh, about nine months of Mm. quite intensive research and checking my temperature, realizing my body temperature was lower than it should be and looking at the impact that saturated fat had on my body temperature and working with, with reintroducing um, foods and reintroducing fat, which was so hard because I was absolutely terrified of eating Mm. fat because I thought I was going to be the fat girl again, which I'd been Mm. as a child. Mm. But um, yeah, about nine months in, I had a period and I I didn't know whether that was going to stay because, you know, I'd been used to all my life basically having a period and then not having another one for a year. Mm. And so I thought, is this, is this going to continue? I carried on with what I was doing. And then four weeks later, I didn't have another period. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm not going to have another <laughs> period again. Turns out I was pregnant. Um, mm. So I... I I proved the doctor wrong. I brought my periods mm. back naturally. And I learned so much about ancestral food and it opened up a, 
a door for me into a way of life that I've been developing for you know the last decade now, which has just brought me so much health and uh, so much depth of expression of feeling like I'm connected to my food, mm. to what's on my table, and to my com- my community and the land. You know, I feel whole. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you said when you started this process, um, it's it's interesting because even though um, so much of your life is centered around food, because it's it's not just that this is a time consuming way to cook, but you also um, this is your livelihood now as well. This is what you teach and bring into the world is these methods, and um, so it's it's interesting because when you started this journey, you it was like the food was the means to the end being the type of life that you wanted. Mm. Um, it turns out that the food almost has been the, <laughs> the end as well. <laughs> yeah. But I guess my question would be, if it started out as the means, are you are you happy with the ends? Do you feel like it has led you to um, to a life that you that you want? Hey there, listeners. I promise this will be a super short interruption and we will get right back to this interview. So it is most definitely fall now. And even though I really, really don't like to think about Christmas until after Thanksgiving, well, as a creator looking to support this podcast, I just have to take advantage of the season. And I know that you will understand and support that. So as you look ahead for Christmas, even if it's just in the back of your mind, I would love to remind you that there is a way you can buy super personalized, meaningful gifts for your friends and family, and also support the podcast. And the way you can do this is by shopping at the Storied Recipe print shop. There you will find beautiful prints that you can feature in kitchens, dining rooms, little reading nooks, and every image in that shop celebrates extraordinary light and the good, good gift of food. Also, even more importantly, every image in the storied recipe print shop literally tells a story, the story of one of my guests. So when you give one of these prints or when you hang one in your own home, you will be helping realize my vision for this podcast. You'll be helping anyone who views that image to become more grateful for the beauty of our food and to honor those that loved us through their cooking. So you can shop the print shop simply by going to the storiedrecipe.com and clicking on print shop on the top menu. Okay, that is it. Thank you for your patience. And now we are heading right back to the interview. Just uh, so incredibly, I cannot tell you how much mm. more myself, how much more grateful, how much more in integrity, how much more at peace I feel to how I ever have done eating. You know, not I say eating any other way, but it's kind of living this way. You know, it, mm. I have I have a wonderful family, and we do such amazing things with food and with our life and. And I'm able to to express that joy that I feel in the kitchen and with my food and share mm-hmm. it with others. It it's a complete. I feel like an, a, a different person to wow. to how I used to live, and I am so so grateful that my journey, which frankly has been horrible at times, you know, being mm-hmm. obese during my teenage years was horrible. Mm-hmm. I had a horrible time, and you know, not 
not having periods and all the kind of other health issues that I've been through along the way it's been hard really hard mm-hmm. a lot of it mm-hmm. and yet I I wouldn't stop it for the world I just wouldn't mm-hmm. stop it for the world because I just I feel so in integrity and that's really important to me integrity is my strongest value and I feel so in integrity now mm-hmm. with what I'm doing well, I'm I'm so glad you said that because this is now the third time you have said that. And I typed the first time you said that. You said, I feel more integrity with my choices. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you mean by that? Um, I've always been the sort of person who doesn't want to... F- doesn't like feeling kind of contradiction, you know, like mm-hmm. feeling like this is what I believe, but this is what I'm doing. I've really struggled with that. I, I guess I, that's why strongly relate to that yes that that's why I couldn't stay at Microsoft I was like I yeah there's all this money and there's all these great perks but I don't feel like that deep down you know I, I can't do this anymore I don't care if I'm going to be poor I'm leaving mm-hmm. <laughs> um and and I feel that so strongly I can't if I want to say something and I feel something I'll tell someone mm-hmm. and sometimes it's got me in big trouble or mm-hmm. you know meant that things have ended when I don't and I and it's been painful, but I feel like I respect the soil. I want to eat what's mm-hmm. around me. I want to support the farmer who lives down the road from me. I want the environment that I live in to be thriving. I don't want a plane to be traveling from Africa to be delivering me some beans because that plane is putting pollution into the air and we're we're killing the world from it, you know? And and I want my food to feel good when I eat it. I want to, to, to feel like it's giving to me. I want to feel like I'm preparing food that will nourish my husband and my son. Mm. I want to, to feel connected. And, and now through doing what I do with my food, that kind of, that gives me that. It makes me feel I don't have to deal with the kind of the contradictions inside me mm-hmm. of, oh, but I feel like this, but I'm not doing this. I can, I can breathe a bit easier and think, yeah, I'm buying this from my farmer and I've spent time cooking it. And you know what? I enjoyed doing that. And look what I created. Isn't it awesome? Mm-hmm. When we sat down together and, and I can just go, oh, you know, it feels good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's answered your question. <laughs> it does. Yes. It answers it completely. How much time do you think that it takes to um, now, of course, for you, again, it's multi-layered because you have this blog and um, podcast and classes and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. but if you were to take that all away and you were Mm -hmm. to just talk about the time that it takes to run an ancestral kitchen, how much Mm -hmm. time does that take? And what is kind of like a, maybe like daily and weekly, and even seasonal routine to kind of keep this kitchen going? What is that like? Mm-hmm. What are, I guess, okay. you know, the chores that you wouldn't necessarily do in a, in a, in a more typical kitchen? Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think if I can try and remember it all, cause it's just like mm. second nature to me now. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I don't have a nine to five and neither does my partner. And I think that mm-hmm. makes it much easier for us. It makes it much easier for me because I've got my partner supporting me. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's behind me 100% and he does the things that that I don't find so easy where I can't do, you know. Mm. He's got my back. Um, mm. But both of us have crafted our lives so we don't have nine to fives. I think it's it's more challenging to go in at the deep end on this mm-hmm. when you're when you're working 
um, in a normal job. Mm-hmm. And so we've, I mean, we kind of consciously chosen to move ourselves away from that because mm-hmm. we wanted to live differently. I think, um, I mean, I, like I said, I cook three meals from scratch every day, but it doesn't mean that I'm there chopping for an hour, an hour and a half before each meal because mm-hmm. I cook a lot in bulk. Mm-hmm. So I will cook some grains or I will make bread and that will last us five meals or four meals or something. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly cooking in bulk and our fridge has always got containers with lots of different things in that get used mm-hmm. for multiple meals. So for instance, I cooked a chicken on Saturday and then the rest of the chicken is in the fridge and that's giving us our main meal every day and mm-hmm. probably for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the things that, that take the time are one shopping mm-hmm. because I don't shop online. I don't go to a supermarket. We walk to the farmer's market once a week and then we go to a local cooperative to pick up extra things. We go to a farmer once every two weeks to pick up our meat. Mm-hmm. Now, that feels good to me to do it because we're on foot. We're spending time together. We're getting light. We're moving our bodies and we're talking to people that we like. Mm-hmm. So I don't kind of see it as a chore. It's part of our life. But it does mm-hmm. take time to do that. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of a commitment. Mm-hmm. It's a in lifestyle. Of, yeah, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a um it's not just a chore that you can necessarily fit into a different lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There are ways to get around it if you have a different mm-hmm. lifestyle, but mm-hmm. it it's not so easy, probably. Mm-hmm. Um Regarding the kind of food routines, there are things that are in my kitchen, um, aside from the kind of, you know, the stuff that I put on the plate, the vegetables that generally get cooked every meal or you know once a day for the rest of the time or a salad mm-hmm. that's in a fridge for four or five days. There are things, there are staples that I will make in bulk once every month, once every mm-hmm. six weeks. So I'm, I always have things that are fermenting. So I make sauerkraut once every six weeks in bulk. Mm-hmm. We drink water kefir every day. So every day I have a routine of that takes me five minutes of um, feeding the water kefir and changing it over. Mm-hmm. We eat saturated fat, which we create ourselves in the kitchen from pig fat or beef fat. So once every six weeks, I will have you know a day where I'm where I'm making lard or I'm making tallow. And mm-hmm. I can do other things. I'm not there all the time doing it, but mm-hmm. I just have to make sure I'm at home. To mm-hmm. every couple of hours to have a look at it the same with stock I eat bone broth a lot mm-hmm. um, meat stock and I get bones from my farmer and every kind of six weeks I will do a really big pot or every couple of weeks I'll do a really big pot and then I will often freeze it and then it will last me for a very long time mm. kind of the same with bread um, but not on such a wide scale I make bread twice a week I make rye bread and spelt bread and mm-hmm. I will generally make two loaves of bread at a time and put one in the freezer. I don't have mm-hmm. a very big freezer, so I have to be mm-hmm. careful how I manage that space. Mm-hmm. But those things I've worked into my routine, you know, because I've been doing them years now, I'm, I, I can do them kind of in my sleep a bit. So mm-hmm. I'm doing them and I'm doing other things around the house. So I'm checking on the stock. I put the bones in the pot. They stay there for a day. And then I drain it and I've got my stock. Mm-hmm. Um, I do spend a lot more time than someone who's buying food in the supermarket mm-hmm. and preparing it in, you know, in the microwave or um, just, you know, cooking up pasta every night. I do mm-hmm. spend a lot more time. 
but I love it. And mm-hmm. I love I love the food. I love the way it makes me feel. I love the process of it. I love mm-hmm. I just love everything about it. And so mm-hmm. I'm grateful that I've managed to be able to maintain a lifestyle where I can do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd I'd love to um like dive 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 a little deeper into this this question. So because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who really resonate with your idea of um eating in a way that maintains um integrity, you know, with their values mm-hmm. and um their desire for health, um desire for, you know, there's this push towards slow living, you know, um a sense of abundance from kind of savoring what you do, what you eat, what you enjoy. Um there's a lot of people, you know, listening who who all of that sounds right and good to them and yet at the same time they do have, you know, they are like a two-person household or perhaps they're a, you know, supporting themselves. There's it's just them as a household or um or or even for me I'm listening and I'm thinking it's it's a not a huge volume that you're making. I have four sons, three of them are teen. Well, my, my third's not quite a teenager, but he eats like a teenager, you know? Um, so for people who are like, okay, I, I'm, I, um, I'm all in philosophically, but I can't get there practically quite yet. Um, and, and it does sound like, I, I, I will say before I even ask this question, it does sound like it's one of those things that you can slowly, if you don't, jump into the deep end, but if you kind of wade in, sooner or later, you might develop routines that do feel like second nature. They don't seem so hard. But how should a person start? Where should they start? What's kind of the most important thing? Um, Maybe I don't don't know if it would be if they would start with like a health goal or if they would start with just um, what would have the most impact for the environment. I don't, I don't know where, or just what's easiest. Um, Where would you suggest people start? How, how should they like, yeah, what's the first step? So I think it depends on each individual completely. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to to understand yourself, at, you know, at a level on this, you know, get mm-hmm. to know what your values are. Because if you don't, you can't articulate what your values are, or if you don't feel what your values are, then you don't know where to start. You're kind of mm-hmm. a bit lost. So if you're not sure why these things are important to you, try to understand right, what's important to me, what, what's important for me to express in my life, what's important for me to live in my life. And getting as clear as you can on that will help you perhaps even immediately understand what you've got to do first. So that's the first thing I'd say. Mm-hmm. The next thing I'd say is, is a, it's just my approach, which is go with your joy mm-hmm. because any habit or any new thing we're trying to change, if it's something we don't want to do or we're not interested in, we're not going to change. Mm. But if we pick something that we're curious about and we're really interested in that brings us joy, we are more likely to continue with it because it will feed us, literally. Mm. Um, and then it will become, like you say, routine. And within a you know a few, four, five, six times of doing it, it you're not having to give as much mental energy to it. Mm. So. You know, if you love the idea of fermenting, we'll start with some fermentation, start trying to make some sauerkraut or start making some kimchi. Mm. If you love the idea of making your own bread, start there. If you really want to support a local farmer, then start researching and find a farmer or, or, you know, kind of a share of a farmer that you can 
purchase your food from. Mm-hmm. Um, do what what piques your curiosity and what will continue to mentally kind of feed you and bring you forward. Mm. I think practically do things as much as you can in in bulk mm. because that's going to be easier and going to give you more for the time that you've got available. So, you know, once you've learned how to make sauerkraut, don't, don't make a kilo of it, you know, make five kilos of it, get a mm-hmm. jar that's big enough, and then that will last you and you can forget about it and you can mm-hmm. move on to something else. You know, dedicate a, a Saturday a month to trying to start to make bread or whatever it is that, you know, kind of gets you going mm. and and do it big once you're comfortable with it. So then you've kind of got that bit under control Mm. it um always for me it's been where my curiosity wants to lead me you know Mm -hmm. so my um expression of an ancestral kitchen is different from from the the woman I do my podcast host with who eats in the same way as me you know I'm making beer out of local grains in Mm. an ancestral way whereas she doesn't do that she's she's got three children and so she's making more kind of family centered mm-hmm. bulk meals that will serve mm-hmm. her and she lives in the country on a farmstead I live in a town mm-hmm. so my expression of it is different and I feel like it for me it's always been a a, a creative expression and the more mm-hmm. joy you can bring into it and the more personal you can make it to you the more likely it is that you're you're going to love it and you're going to stick mm-hmm. with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible for someone who, um, you know, whose job is not food, do you think it's possible to create um, this kind of kitchen? Yeah, yeah, completely. Mm. I mean, my job, my job hasn't always been food. I was, I was a life, I was a life coach when I started eating ancestrally. Mm. And Mm. so again, I did work from home, but I worked a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. I worked a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, with organization and when things become routine, mm. it is certainly possible for you to, because it, it doesn't require you, you know, a sourdough bread doesn't require you being there five hours. It might require five hours time, but you've only got to give five minutes to it or 10 minutes to it over those five hours. So mm-hmm. if you can get organized enough, it doesn't necessarily mean you're having to be at the kitchen counter all the time. Mm-hmm. 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 I appreciate that. Okay, my last question about your journey and your ancestral kitchen, and then we'll talk about this pizza, which I have <laughs> sitting sitting on my on my first attempt sitting on the island oh, uh, downstairs. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to chat about this with you. But um, my and this might be this might be I say just one question, but it's a it's a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. it's it's just this: Do you feel like moving to Italy? Um, enabled you to live to live this um lifestyle more easily and what you know what was that journey like for you um i i was living an ancestral lifestyle in england before we moved mm. to Italy, definitely mm-hmm. um we lived in cornwall on the southwest mm. coast of england before directly before we moved to to italy this time and you know i had different farmers i had different produce but i was doing basically the same thing that i'm doing now in england mm. so it, it's possible to do it in england mm. um i think it's easier to do it here having said that because mm. there's more produce there's more awareness of local produce mm-hmm. there's there's more sun and the, the mm-hmm. tastes are more diverse and and it's easier to grow vegetables 
yeah. Italy has a strong artisanal culture of, you know, salumi and cheeses and meat meats, and it 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 feels part of breathing here more than it mm. does in England. It's been lost in England. Now, England had that, and and there are some wonderful people in England still doing it, but it in the mainstream has lost it more than the mainstream's lost it here. Mm. Um, I feel like moving to Italy was um very important for my kind of my soul and my spirit which is why mm. we're here and that has enabled me to to deepen and broaden what I'm doing with my food it was part of this um coming home for you it was it it i i didn't go to italy when i was a young child but mm. i visited it when i was in my 20s and i completely mm. fell in love with it and I knew that I didn't, that things were, I just didn't feel right in England, you know, but mm. I, I was always the sort of person, because I grew up in a, a standard household, I never thought I was the type of person who could do things like move countries. Mm-hmm. You know, before before I um, started my food business, I was working as an artist and it took me ages to explore that because I just thought that other people who were more talented than me mm-hmm. or come from a different family than me were artists. I didn't think I could be an artist. Mm-hmm. And and it for, for a long time I was in England and England was just my home. And then I got really quite ill at a point. And that was the thing that pushed me to move for the first time. Mm. Um, I was ill and back at home with my parents. And during that time, there was a voice in my head that said, you want to live in Italy why are you not doing it Mm. so I said okay I'm going to get better and then I'm going to focus on trying to get out there and and I did it took about a year I taught trained to teach English and I came out to Italy in 2009 with Mm. my partner who's now my husband he didn't know if he could stay with me he but he wanted to see me happy so he helped me move Mm. um and we stayed here um for four years kind of at the beginning he wasn't with me most of the time but then um then he was Mm. then we went back to England for the birth of my son because I Mm. wanted um a natural Mm -hmm. birth and I Mm. tried to talk to midwives here in Italy and because I hadn't had a period Mm -hmm. and I couldn't tell them um when Mm -hmm. I was when I got pregnant or anything like that they said we can't take you on and Mm -hmm. you you won't be able to be taken on Mm. so I didn't want to leave Italy. <laughs> it was mm. hard, but we decided to go back to England. And um, we um, had our son Gabriel in England, mm. beautiful birth at home. And, I, and I'm glad we went back there because he had, as I alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. some, some health problems. Yes. And we were, we were, I'm glad we navigated those in our country of You're, origin. Yeah. Right? You know, my, hu- yeah. my husband's English as well. Yeah. Um, but then we moved to Cornwall and I tried so hard to live in in England, I thought this is sensible. You know, my son can be educated here. We're English. My, it's easier to run a business in England, like a million mm. times easier, um, mm. and it's just simpler. But I just, I just wilted. I got ill again mm. in Cornwall. I virtually didn't leave the house for about a year, um, and then Brexit happened in the UK, and my and both my husband and I feel more European than we do English. Mm. And that kind of pushed us. My husband's quite strongly pro-European and he was upset that our son wouldn't be able to be in Europe like we could, like we could have travelled, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of pushed us because I thought, well, they're 
they're going to take away my right to live in Italy. I won't be able to go back there again in the future, you know? Mm. And that gave us the push with me being unwell to just go that we've mm. got to move. You know, my, my husband kind of felt like he'd lost his wife. And when we came back here, after mm-hmm. about a week, he was like, I got my wife back, you know? Mm. And so all three of us moved back here um, in 2019. So this is kind of our second time mm-hmm. here, this time with our son, which mm. has brought lots more challenges because the kind of the, the struggle I had with, you know, bringing him away from his grandparents and his mm. friends, taking him to a place where he didn't speak the language and culture's difficult and it's more difficult to live here and work here. But I just, I wasn't human in England. Mm. I just, I, I don't really know why, but Italy is mm. always... From the first time I went here, Italy has felt like it, it is an antidote. You know, I, mm. I come here and it feels like someone's injected something into my veins and I've come alive. Mm. And it just feels like it, it is everything that I, I'm not able or wasn't able to, to find myself in England mm. is served here. And somehow my nervous system just goes down you know it mm. rather than being kind of all upset and anxious I, c- I can breathe again and my nervous system just goes oh okay now I can have I can get on with my life well and it's been your experience multiple times over too it wasn't yeah. a fluke yeah. mm-hmm. no completely it's happened over and over again and and it it it's really it feels like my path and you know I I could sit here and say well it's harder here my son's far away from his grandparents and or I could go well I feel happy here and and Mm. I can be a wife and I can be a mum much better here and my son's learning another language and he'll never Mm -hmm. get that opportunity again and Mm -hmm. we're we're, we live a wonderful life here and Mm -hmm. it's different um but it it yeah I can't imagine going back to England at the moment I just can't Mm. Mm. Well, there may be somebody listening who needed to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, let's talk about spelt pizza. Spelt, <laughs> okay. spelt sourdough pizza. Yeah. yeah. Why did oh, you choose? Well. Go for it. Why did you choose this? Yeah, recipe? yeah. Um, I, I chose it because I couldn't choose anything else when you asked. It just oh! it was the obvious <laughs> thing. And um, I told my husband about the interview and I said, um, and I, I'll choose a recipe and he's, He's like, well, I know what recipe that's going to be. And, and he was the same. <laughs> it feels like my signature dish, I think. Mm. It, I think it's because it it kind of brings together my love of Italy. You know, pizza mm. is obviously Italian, mm-hmm. but it's also, it it reflects, you know, pizza here is wheat and not necessarily sourdough. And this is a spelt mm-hmm. pizza and it's sourdough. And so it brings together my love of pizza and my love of kind of joy in eating together and the, and the joy that pizza is you know sharing mm-hmm. pizza mm-hmm. with the processing of grains through a wild um, yeast in fermentation using a grain that's ancient and hasn't been hybridized like wheat mm. my husband can't eat wheat mm. but he can eat spelt when I make it like this and mm. I just I love bread I love the taste of spelt mm. I love sourdough I love everything about sourdough I love mm. the fact that it's whole grain and, and all of my breads um, are whole grain. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's not wasting anything, you get all the goodness of the bran. Mm. And it it's something that I, as soon as I kind of got spelt bread 
under my belt. So that's how I just thought, right, I've got to start on pizza. And I just, I experimented and experimented and tried and tried and failed, tried again and failed. And then I managed to to come up with something that I feel is repeatable and other people Mm. can repeat Mm -hmm. that makes a pizza that is just lovely. And every time we make it, it feels special, you know. It, it feels like it's a special meal. My son loves it. We all love it. We sit together. We've got this beautiful round bread topped with kind of, you know, whatever we feel like that day. Mm, mm, mm. And it's crunchy and it's soft and it's tasty and it's warm. Mm. And, it's, you know, it just it's a wonderful celebration food. It's our, it's our treat. It hits and the spot every time. It hits the spot every time. Yeah, Well, right. yes. And, you know, for for a um a Briton who's adopted homeland is Italy, it did have to be pizza. It really did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, what um if if you successfully make your spelt sourdough pizza, what mm. textures and flavors are you going to experience? Like obviously we're not going for a domino. I don't even know mm. if you have dominoes in the UK, but <laughs> you're not going yeah, for do. um okay, so you're not going for a domino's pizza. What is the correct outcome here? What do we want? Um I'd say, first of all, what you want is just to feel joy over it. You mm. want to be like, I've got a gorgeous pizza here that I've just made in my oven and it's hot yes. and it tastes really good. And look at all these toppings and I'm having fun eating it. That's amazing. Yes. Thing. Okay. Uh, check that um, box. Check that box for sure. If you for check me. that box, um, you're looking for something that has been cooked. So the base is crunchy. Mm-hmm. You know, so it maybe when you turn it over, there's kind of it's darker brown, much darker mm-hmm. brown. And you've got when you bite into it, you can hold it up, first of all. So you're picking it up a slice mm. and it doesn't go bloop in the doesn't middle. Doesn't droop. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you haven't put so many toppings on it that it's done mm. that and it's cooked well enough. So you can hold a slice and it will keep its shape. And then mm-hmm. when you bite into it, you've got the the warmth. You've got the nutty, bready flavour of the spelt. Mm. It's risen, so you've got little air pockets and it's mm. soft on the top. But at the bottom, you've got that kind of crunchy, crispy. And around the edge, you've got the crisp. Mm. And then on the top, you've got toppings that are not too heavy that it drowns the flavour of the dough mm-hmm. because the dough is the most important thing in the pizza, not the mm-hmm. toppings. Mm-hmm. And yet you've got toppings that accentuate the flavors of the dough so maybe some herbs that will bring it out some sort of fat on some something with fat on the top that will help mm. round the flavors of the mm. of the dough and then whatever flavors you like on the top really i'd say that, that yeah i loved that you um infuse your olive oil with oregano and thyme and then you put fresh fresh basil on top because there's nothing like fresh herbs um yes there's, there's really nothing. And you really, so I, so let me tell you about mine and we'll troubleshoot. Mm, okay. okay. <laughs> and then um, yep. after we troubleshoot mine, we'll talk about some of the more general techniques. So mine, um, yeah, absolutely. It felt joy when I pulled it out. It looked amazing, Yay. looked beautiful, um, smelled wonderful. The warm, I, dug right in. I didn't mm-hmm. eat breakfast Good. for about two and a half hours after I got up this morning. So <laughs> I <laughs> dug I dug right in and it was that flavor was wonderful. The I like you said that nutty earthy flavor really lends itself. So what I did for toppings because um I feel like you did give me the freedom. It's more of a directive mm-hmm. than freedom to not go with like just a lot of sauce, a lot of cheese. Mm-hmm. I actually um 
because uh, a couple weeks ago, I interviewed um, a Palestinian woman. She gave me a wonderful lentils and rice dish that is always topped with lots of onions, caramelized onions, and more of a crisp, raw sumac onion. So I have lots of that um, in my freezer. My kids have been getting it in their thermos for lunch, and they love it with the onions. So this morning, I had caramelized a lot of onions. I had also marinated a lot of onions in sumac and olive oil. So I put um, zatar you know, like the Middle Eastern spice. I put zatar and caramelized onions and sumac onions on my pizza. So the flavor was like out of this world. It was amazing. Now to the issues. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Around the edges, um, I did get a few bubbles, but Mm -hmm. the middle, and it was crispy on the bottom. So that was good, mm-hmm. but it was definitely more like a flatbread than like a, I mean, it was maybe, maybe a quarter of an inch, maybe like a centimeter tall. That's, that's, that's all that I had for my crust. Okay. So <laughs> there's lots of things I'm going to suggest. And you tell me what you think were maybe the the issue. And um, so first of all, um, I did not, I'm, totally new to sourdough. Um, I got sourdough, a sourdough starter from a friend of mine who bakes, you know, sourdough all the time. That's basically all of her baked goods. She uses, um, she uses like discard um, Mm -hmm. from, and so she gave me the starter and to be honest, and maybe you can just share how to do this now. I don't think I was feeding it properly um, at first and it wasn't super active when I put it into my dough last night. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I read more about how to feed it properly, and it looks a lot better this morning. <laughs> okay. So, so um, that that could be one issue. Um, the other, well, so let's just talk about these one at a time. So, first of yeah, all, how okay. let's let's really do this for people who are just starting out. Like, how should you? How do you feed? What's your routine for feeding a sourdough starter? Mm-hmm. And do you think that was my problem? So, I would say yes. Definitely, that would have played into to what went on with your mm-hmm. pizza. Um, I maintain a sourdough starter with rye, with whole grain rye flour. Mm-hmm. And it's just something, no matter what bread I'm making, my starter is usually rye. And the reason I do that is because rye has tons of yeast and bacteria on it. And it's just, it's a mm-hmm. wonderful um, flour to, to maintain starters. And really, the strength of your starter is going to absolutely directly impact mm. the the strength you know the the rise in your dough there are other things which we'll probably get to mm. but so i would suggest if someone is um wanting to work with a sourdough starter my method is to use whole grain rye flour and um there's a blog post on my site that talks about how to create mm-hmm. a starter and how to maintain it. Mm-hmm. It's important to get to know that starter. So you haven't had enough time really kind mm-hmm. of living with your starter to get to no. know it. The more intimate you are with the starter, the more you watch it rise, see what it likes, see how long it likes, see what temperatures it likes, see when it's ready. Then you are much more able to apply it to a bread and get consistent, good results. Yeah. Yeah, the I fact well, that your starter wasn't ready. It's going to have a huge effect, and so just by following a routine where you're refreshing your starter regularly and you're understanding what it needs, mm-hmm. then you're in a position where you can work with it at its best. Yeah, I think I drowned my starter. <laughs> 
because I didn't, <laughs> I thought a hundred, I, I know a hundred percent hydration means equal amounts, flour and yeah. water. And I thought yeah. I was supposed to feed it at that. And I think that it was just too much, too much water. So yesterday I followed last night after I took it out to make the dough, I was like, this is definitely not right. So mm-hmm. I read a different set of directions and did it. Um, I, I followed the King Arthur baking Mm-hmm. directions. And this morning it looked much, much better. So I was like, oh man, too bad. I'm not starting, starting yeah, the dough right yeah. now. So that, that was probably, that was probably, like you said, a big part of it. The mm-hmm. second thing that I wonder if it was part of it. And, um, I'm curious, I'm curious about this. So, um, you mentioned that, uh, so briefly for people listening, the method is you kind of mix it up in the evening. Um, you do a lot of just working it. You, you're careful to not say kneading, but just working mm-hmm. it. And in fact, you even have a picture of your son and he's kind of just like digging around in there, like just kind of yeah. pushing it around, <laughs> which is interesting. And then in the morning, um, you get it back out. And then multiple times through the morning, you kind of do this stretching technique to build up the gluten. So I think my second issue was I really wanted to do, um, I don't, I don't usually make recipes before the interview. I can kind of just tell from, and, uh, um, from a recipe, what I get or what I don't get or where I think the issues are, but this is all so new to me. I really wanted Mm -hmm. to do it. So I was getting on the phone with you at nine o'clock, which meant it had to get into the oven at eight 30. I got up at six and I had an hour drive in the middle there. So I didn't do, um, as much stretching, I think, as you would have recommended. But I will say at six, when I got it out, it was like tearing when I tried to stretch it. And Mm -hmm. by the end, I was easily able to stretch it into a 14 inch. um, Okay. Which is, you know, which is not bad at all. It was quite thin. Um, So it got, it got some, but my two questions about this step um, is one, why is is neat like can you just knead it instead of doing this 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 other technique um and two what am i looking for like if i didn't have this hard constraint where would i have said okay i think this dough is actually ready and do you think that was part of my problem as well my flatness yeah. issue um i don't need because i mean traditionally kneading is really kind of hard work mm. and later kind of bakers recently have said you don't actually need to knead in hmm. some people don't do anything to the dough they will just leave it huh. and let it rise i mean there are no touch kind of no needs no nothing does huh. um sometimes i don't get to stretching and folding it the technique that um you did as often hmm. as i i want to the point of doing it is to kind of redistribute it get get the air out that's in there and then redistribute what's going on in your dough so it has more chance of um rising Hmm. I think um the way that that you know that it's ready and it it comes with doing it more often unfortunately it's it's like you know just anything learning to ride a bike the more that you do it the more that you know how to balance Hmm. and the dough will become more airy that's how you'll know it will feel like you'll look at it after you've left it to rest for a while and you'll come to do the stretch and fold and you'll be like, oh, that's bigger. So you'll Mm. see it increase in size. It will feel different when you pick it up. If you tap the bottom of the bowl with the dough in there, it will sound different Mm. than it had done previously because you'll hear the echo of the kind of the noise going through those air bubbles that are inside. Mm. 
And then as you pick it up, it will just feel more like a sponge than a kind of flat mm. piece of, of dough. And overdoing it again and again, you start to, to learn through feedback, okay, this is, you know, this is what it felt like when I put it in the oven last time and I had a good result. So I'm going to try again. Oh, mm-hmm. this last time it didn't quite work. So let me leave it for a bit longer and try mm. next time. So it it's um it's a it becomes an intuitive process when you've mm-hmm. done it enough times because you know what to look for. Um, yeah. But really, you're looking for the the lightness of it, how it feels in your hand, the sound of the bowl, and you want it to feel airy. I mean, you you want it you want to be surprised by that it's risen and you want to be able to pick it up and kind of almost feel that you're squishing the air mm. out when you handle it. Mm. Mine did not feel airy. <laughs> it it had clearly that, yeah. grown some. And like I said, I was happy that I could, it was very easy to stretch. It's a very easy dough yeah. to work with. I will say it might be the easiest dough I've ever worked with, to be honest with yeah, you. Spelt is really extensible. It's a really extensible oh. flower. It felt, I didn't have to, yeah, it felt so easy to work with, but yeah, it sounds like it wasn't quite there and maybe it didn't have quite what it even needed to start with. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if I didn't, knowing that my starter was not quite ready, I, it needed extra time to rise and I was, I was on a time, I was on a time constraint. Yeah. The one other thing I wonder is if I exacerbated the problem again, um, did I stretch it too thin? Um, Because I made it real, real, real thin. I really wanted that crispy bottom. (laughs) And um, I I don't have the setup that you have. I don't have a Mm. pizza stone and the, um, Mm -hmm. what's it called? The pala? Pala? The pala, pala, yeah. Pala, which is a metal... shovey thing. Yeah. <laughs> <to put on. laughs> yeah. I have um I have just kind of a big it's a 14 inch and it has like the air um it's aerated oh, yeah, on the yeah. bottom. It's like metal yeah. and aerated on the bottom. So um definitely post industrialization <laughs> what, yeah. what I yeah. have. Um and I wanted it to fill the thing so I just stretched it okay. to the 14 inches and I wonder if it was too um I I thin. usually do mine about 12. Okay. So generally mine have been thicker. It it probably still should have done some rising. Mm. I've never stretched that dough to 14. So I don't know what happens when you do that. Mm-hmm. I think possibly the um the base that you're putting on and the temperature of the oven could make a difference too. Pizza mm. goes into ridiculously hot ovens in, in yes. commercial um yes. setting. And it that really helps the formation and the setting of those bubbles. Mm. Um, so it, it could be a kind of combination of perhaps how far you stretched it. And then the fact that you, that combined with the fact that perhaps your oven wasn't quite as hot as it could have been and Mm. maybe having another, a hotter surface to put it on rather than the aerated holes might've made a difference too. Mm, Yes. Because you have your stone in there for an hour, preheating an hour. I thought that was quite remarkable. Yeah. And I'm actually looking it up. It's actually, um, it's almost 16 inches. Um, oh wow! My okay. my pants. So I think it might have also, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that's from edge to edge. I I'm not sure. Let's stick. It with did 40. really well to get it crispy, and did it, got, it did it hold its shape when you cut a slice? It didn't. Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's really it did. good. 
It did. I it think definitely... you did incredibly for a first time trial. Okay. <laughs> first time. Well, I'm yeah. looking forward to doing it again. Definitely now I know. I mean, like I said, when I saw that started this morning, I was like, oh, that's mm. how it's supposed to look. So I might go mix up some dough, which is a question, actually. And maybe we can kind of end um, with this one. If I mix the... So you make it evening and eat by lunch the next day. Yeah. Um, can I just keep it in the fridge for an extra day and then kind of start the process again two days later? Or do I need to be pretty strict about this mm. timetable? Sometimes I've left it in the, the when, I'm, when there's been an emergency, I've left it in the um, fridge. Make sure it's covered really well because you don't want it mm. to dry out. Mm-hmm. So make sure you put it in something in the fridge that's covered. You may find that it over ferments depending on your flour, you know, your starter, mm. the temperature of your um, fridge. But it, it's kind of forgiving in my experience. So mm. I, I wouldn't be bothered. I have also done it without the overnight thing before. So I've got up early in the morning. My mm. starter's been ready in the morning. I've mixed it in the morning. And then I've left it out all morning mm. doing the, the stretch and fold. And then I cooked it for lunchtime. I like the routine of putting it in the fridge overnight because it kind of breaks up the work time. Mm-hmm. You know, then you yes. don't have to mix it in the morning. And also... Yes. Um, a longer fermentation period has been kind of shown to provide more time for the yeast and bacteria to break down the hard to digest carbohydrates. Mm. So generally longer fermented breads are easy to digest. So that's why I like to, to put it in the fridge as well, but it, it's adaptable. You could leave it for a couple of days. You could also um, do it first thing in the morning. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, I think for people listening, first of all, I would say, I think this is the perfect, I actually think this is, um, in addition to all the reasons why you chose this recipe, I actually Mm -hmm. think it might be the perfect first sourdough recipe (laughs) because um, for one, the spelt flour is just so delicious that um, it kind of covers a multitude of sins, but then also you get the crispiness. Um, You know, I'm not looking for this big round ball. You know what I mean? Um, And so even even if you don't do it perfectly, like I didn't, it was still like, I can't wait to go back down and get a third slice. (laughs) (laughs) I left it out for my husband who would be coming home. Um, So I Um, think it's the perfect, and it it is, um, you can fail and it still be a success is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's pizza, as long as it kind of is edible, it's going to be fun. It's going to be nice. And it was far better it was way more than edible. I, it was, it was yeah. delicious. I just think it can yeah. be a lot better. Um, it doesn't have that beautiful, the beautiful pockets around the edge. You had a couple of them around the edge, mm. um, that you had. So, um, so definitely, you know, of course you're allowing me to share this recipe on my blog, mm-hmm. but I'm linking all through that to yours because I think, um, for anyone listening and I'll, I'll put this of course in the blog as well, you really want to look at Allison's site, kind of see the videos, um, see the the correct outcome. Um, you know, hopefully when I go to um, photograph it, my <laughs> outcome will be better, but you really want to go to Allison's site and see this. And then Allison, you offer a lot of other things. Um, that can kind of coach people in this way of not just cooking, but living. So tell everyone what you offer and where they can find you. Yeah. Okay. So my website is www.ancestralkitchen.com. Mm. Simple. And mm-hmm. on there, there are recipes, there are articles I've written. As you said, some of the recipes have got videos in them. Um, there are also um, links in there to the courses that I have um, made. And there's one on um, sourdough starters, 
there is a course that I've just created on rice sourdough bread and there's also an oat fermentation course and there's a chocolate course mm. um the best oh, way I missed the chocolate course I didn't know about that <laughs> oh yes yes I did see it it's called from bean from bean to bar yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's I about did see that. roasting your own and making your own chocolate without any special equipment. Oh, that sounds amazing. Home, oh, wow. Which is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the best ways to, to get to know me more are really through my podcast, which mm-hmm. is called Ancestral Kitchen. It's on all the podcast apps that so just type in Ancestral Kitchen. Mm-hmm. That's bi-weekly. And there's a, a over a year and a half of um, back episodes to listen mm-hmm. to, which go into all different areas of um of my kind of ancestral cooking, mm. ancestral cooking. And I am also on Instagram a couple of times a week. My handle there is ancestral underscore kitchen. So I share on there um, and there are lots of stories on there. There's a story about spelt sourdough where you mm. can, and the highlight where you can see lots of information about that. There's tons of other highlights on there and lots of information going back as well. Mm. Wonderful. Wonderful. Alison, this has been such a joy. I, no, I took a lot of time from you. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. I learned so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really wonderful to to chat with you. Your questions are are spot on, and and to give me the space to be able to share my stories. Mm. Um, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks again to Allison. Of course, all of her contact information, her recipe are in the show notes. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode, could I please ask you to do two things? These are both really important to the success of the podcast for me to be able to continue doing it, to support it, and um, of course, bringing more people to listen. So the two things I'm asking of you is first, if you enjoyed it, would you please just share it with a friend or family member? And secondly, would you leave a five-star review. If you're not sure how to do this, it's super easy. Just scroll down to the bottom of the show notes. You're going to find a heading that says leave a review and you can link in there. And there's just this handy little feature that is going to figure out exactly the easiest way for you to do that on whatever device you're on and whatever player you're listening in. So just scroll down and find that link. So that is it. I have so enjoyed sharing this conversation with Allison with you. And I hope you have a wonderful week, my friends.